You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network with Nikki Stott. I wish to acknowledge country and also all the elders past, present and emerging who've been part of the struggle for so long for sovereignty and self-determination. Two weeks ago, approval was given by Japarong elders in Western Victoria for the Victorian state government to begin a very minimal and careful amount of work on a small section of the site where they have been successfully prevented by the Japarung Heritage Protection Blockade from bulldozing 260 sacred trees up to 800 years old to make way for a section of highway to save two minutes of driving time. Japarung and Gunai sovereign woman Lydia Thorpe gave an update on 3CR squatters and unwaged workers' airwaves on the facts about developments at the Japarong Protection Blockade, as well as recent updates on the so-called and supposedly ongoing treaty process in Victoria. I was part of that mediation. We were put in a a separate room, major roads, lawyers were in another room, and the federal minister's lawyers were in another room. We never actually sat in the same room. It was really weird in the federal court. It's yeah, it's nothing to get excited about. It's basically we've allowed um, through the senior Japarung women um, providing that consent, allowed 3.5 kilometres of a 12-kilometre stretch to begin very minor work. So they can't bring in heavy machinery. They they can't cut down any trees. They can't disturb any of the landscape um, as such. It's very minor work at this point. So that 3.5 kilometre stretch is also part of the northern option. We've been trying to negotiate from the, from the outset. It also follows a already disturbed route, an easement that was for power line, and, you know, it's already in a disturbed area. So that's pretty much all it is, but we've still got to fight for the rest of that stretch of the highway in terms of protection and getting major roads and the Victorian government to go with this northern option, which is the preferred option by our old people. Government always say that they've consulted and they've spoken to the right people and they've, you know, followed proper process. But we all know, not just in the black space, but in in all community spaces that are trying to protect and preserve our country, to stand up for our most vulnerable communities, that that's just not the case. These corporations have been set up. They only have a, you know, a, a set number of members who are part of those corporations who, who ultimately make decisions, not with consent of their traditional owners that they purport to represent. And that's the problem with the whole cultural heritage legislation, that the cultural heritage legislation set up the Victorian Aboriginal Heritage Council who then decides who speaks for country. To get on the Victorian Aboriginal Heritage Council, you have to be appointed by the Aboriginal Affairs Minister of the time. 
So if that doesn't indicate to your listeners out there that there's an absolute flawed process going on here, and there has been obviously for a very long time, I was one of those um, people as a, a younger uh, member of my um, mob from from Gunai Country, I think it was uh, around tw- 2012, uh, where we gathered, there was about a hundred of us that went to Parliament House to uh, refute any support of the cultural heritage legislation because we knew then what problems it would be for us today and mm. it is exactly that. You know, we, we knew then what is happening now and that is that these corporations are signing off on these dodgy deals with the government that only allows for these dirty developments to happen and destroy not just our environment but everything that goes with that, including our water. I, I was told by Raph Epstein that I was taking a green position, but, you know, I'm a, I'm a black sovereign woman first and foremost and I always put my culture and my integrity as a sovereign black woman before anything and... You know this this treaty. It's a it's a domestic treaty that I don't know what they want to talk about, but what I wanted to talk about was um, the protection of country and the protection of culture and the preservation of our water. But I don't think that's what the you know the current Labor government want to entertain. So I think that absolutely this is a litmus test in terms of their good faith when they're still logging at my country, Gunai country, at still the rate of, you know, five MCGs per day in the Central Highlands, when we're fighting for the Japarung trees, when we're fighting for, you know, the change of the statistics of incarceration rates. Like, look, I'm not seeing much good faith at all and that is that is a very big issue, and and the Treaty Victoria conversation is not what a treaty is really about. As a Japarung woman, that's what it feels like. We feel like that we are continually under assault from this government, who are, you know, it's like which priority do we fight for today? Do we fight for deaths in custody? Do we fight for our children to stop being removed from their families? Do we fight for the Japarung trees or do we fight for the protection of our country that's being logged at the rate that it is? There's so many priorities that it does feel like um, we are under extreme violent attack. I don't see the fight as being over. I don't think we should roll over anytime soon. The people that are signatures to the court process are... Three Japarung women, two are very senior elders of the Japarung and, one, and um, with two junior Japarung people. One is a, is male and one is female. So uh, we the fight's not over until we sort out the rest of that route. There's still a lot of country to be saved. The mediation process was not done in good faith. As I said, we didn't ever sit in the same room as the other parties. So they never heard how we feel about our own country and what that means to us. They didn't even send decision makers. They thought, they, you know, they sent um, 
I don't know, project management type people from MRVP and and um, they weren't in positions to make decisions. So that's why it's taken so long. These people had to go back to their decision makers, whereas we, in good faith, sent our decision makers. We had the authority to make decisions on behalf of the Jafarung community. And so, you know, from the outset, it wasn't done in good faith, so um, Minister Allen says, but it's not about, you know, taking the foot off the pedal. It's about maintaining our fight and our stance to protect the rest of that route and pushing them to go to a route that um, has least cultural and environmental impact. And we need as many allies as we can to continue to fight these others. And that was Japarungan's Gunai sovereign woman, Lydia Thorpe, with an update on the Japarung Protection Embassy blockade. Protectors there have put the message out this week that support is needed on the ground more than ever. To find out more information, check out Japarung Heritage Protection Embassy on your socials. You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Over the last two weeks, tens of thousands of people in more than 60 countries have taken part in the Extinction Rebellion Movement's Spring Actions Campaign, demanding that governments take immediate and decisive action on the climate and ecological emergency. Mainstream media criticism of the campaign has been predictably vitriolic along familiar lines. But in the grassroots... There's been some more constructive criticism of the movement, reflective of the similar kind of criticism that the mainstream environment movement has grappled with for a while, for being too white, too middle class and too apathetic to the reality that environmental harm follows existing lines of poverty and systemic racism. In the UK last month, at the global climate strike, BIPOC collective The Wretched of the Earth had this to say on the subject. You've all heard that our house is on fire, but for many of us, our house has been on fire for over 500 years. For centuries, racism, sexism and classism have been necessary for this system to be upheld. And the same ideology of supremacy and the same mechanisms of extraction which have led us here in the first place will never bring about justice. There is absolutely no room for nationalism and nationalist thinking in climate justice. We will not allow the poorest in our society to pay the price for tackling the climate crisis, but neither will we allow the people of the global south to be sacrificed in order to protect the citizens of the global north. The lives of the many cannot pay for the lifestyles of the few. A greener economy in the UK will achieve very little if the government continues to hinder countries in the global south from doing the same through crippling debt, unfair trade deals and the export of its own deadly extractive industries. There can be no climate justice without migrant justice. This means ending the hostile environment of walls and fences, detention centres and prisons that are used is a right and not something you were forced to do because your home is inhospitable. 
we must defend indigenous communities and their territories where they hold 80% of the world's biodiversity. We could take enormous steps towards limiting climate breakdown merely by respecting indigenous sovereignty. The fight for climate justice is the fight for our lives and we need to do it right. Bearing these thoughts in mind last weekend, I attended a Saturday morning nudie march in Melbourne where Extinction Rebellion activists were bearing it all to express their sense of vulnerability in the current climate and ecological emergency. I spoke with some of the participants to find out where Extinction Rebellion activists in Australia are at in regards to decolonising the environment movement. I've been somewhat very intrigued and passionate about the climate movement as well as the climate strike and Extinction Rebellion because of the education I've gained studying environmental science in the society. And I've been trying to get involved as much as possible, but I do recognise not everyone can get involved because, you know, being able to protest and making a movement is a privilege and I feel like we should support everyone in every way if they would like to be involved. Hi, I'm Jess and, yeah, I'm also passionate about the fact that we need climate action now and I'm just here to try and raise awareness that it is a big issue and if we don't act now there's going to be serious consequences and just try and spread the message and break down the arrogance of people that think we can just pretend nothing's happening. Some people say that one really big help towards working to a better situation would be to recognise Indigenous sovereignty. Would you agree with that? I think it's definitely an important thing to um, recognise in today's society and the way that the Indigenous people did live were a, a lot more caring and like knowledgeable about the land than what we do. And yeah, like they were pretty much fully sustainable in their culture and their lifestyle, whereas today's society in Australia isn't anywhere near that at all. So with the environment movement sort of as a whole, there's been um, a lot of critique that they've basically failed. How would you speak to that? I don't think the movement and environmental awareness has failed. I think people are failing to respond and taking us seriously. Something that has been raised with Extinction Rebellion, which I think also extends to the broader environment movement, is that it's too white. Would you agree with that? I can definitely understand how that is someone's concern, going back to what I mentioned about how having being able to protest is a privilege, and we do need to recognise that it needs to be voiced more, that the climate movement is also about the need for climate justice, and it's something that is not recognised, it is not spread awareness about, and I do recognise that people of different colours and socioeconomic classes may not feel comfortable joining because it is predominantly white, because we have recognised we have the privilege to make a platform for everyone, but I hope that in the future a lot of people feel more comfortable to join our platform and unite together. Hi, I'm Misha. I've been here at the Spring Rebellion all week. I took the whole week off work because this is really the most important thing we need to be doing right now is taking action on climate. Um, So I sacrificed my holidays to come here to force the government to take action and I'm feeling very vulnerable and afraid about the climate emergency and the impending climate catastrophe and so that's why I'm getting naked today to show how exposed we all are um, to the effects of climate change which are really right around the corner in fact they're already here so we need to take urgent action the time is now. Some people say that the problem is a systemic problem it's capitalism would you agree with that? 
Uh, yeah, I would. I think a whole lot of the struggles um, that many groups are fighting at the moment are really all intricately linked. Um, so I think capitalism is a big part of the problem. Um, racism, uh, homophobia, all of these things are systemic problems uh, and they have intertwined solutions. So we all need to work together to actually change the system for climate justice. Some people say that actually a really big step forward in terms of addressing the issues of climate change would be to recognise Indigenous sovereignty. Would you agree with that? Absolutely, absolutely. And First Nations people have been at the forefront of rebelling against extinction for several hundreds of years in Australia. Um, And we need to recognise their struggles and fight together with them for their sovereignty and also for us all to work together for climate justice. So that's absolutely something that XR is working towards. We still need to do some work to build relationships with First Nations people, but it's something we're absolutely committed to. And I've also been hearing a bit of criticism, not just with Extinction Rebellion, but generally lately directed at environmental NGOs, that they've actually essentially failed in their tactics and that we need to actually address that and look at a new approach. Well, I think that's why Extinction Rebellion has taken on uh, non-violent direct action as its sort of core modus operandi because um, there's a banner over there that you might see that says because protesting wasn't enough. Um, the facts have been clear around climate change for at least 30 years. No one's been taking any notice of the science. So, you know, we've all written petitions, we've all participated in protests, we've all lobbied our MPs, but now's the time to actually put our bodies on the line and say we need action now. There's been some criticisms with Extinction Valium, particularly in the UK, that it's too white. Would you agree with that? I think there's still some work to do for Extinction Rebellion to be uh, really living its value of radical inclusivity. And another of our core values is learning and reflecting. And I think there's definitely opportunities for us to be more inclusive. That said, my experience has been that it has been an incredibly inclusive group. There is some racial diversity, there's diversity in abilities, there's diversity in class. So we're building that already, but there's, I would agree there's still some more work to do. And I think also, you know, there have been many oppressed groups, including First Nations people, workers who have been fighting for justice for a long time. And perhaps the middle class, white middle class people haven't been so visible in their solidarity for those movements. And I think the time is now where we're seeing actually everyone is going to be significantly impacted by this, that it's time for us all to be working together and for white middle class people around the world to be taking action across all of those movements and really showing their solidarity and working proactively with those groups as well. As part of the Extinction Rebellion Spring actions and in the build-up to the IMARC blockade happening in Melbourne next week, the Philippines-Australia Solidarity Association held a protest rally on Monday this week outside Oceana Gold's headquarters in solidarity with the grassroots campaign by the people of Nevea Vizcaya who have barricaded Australian mining company Oceana Gold's open-pit copper and gold mine in the Philippines. Oceana Gold have been responsible for violence against Indigenous land and peoples in Ecuador and the Philippines, as well as in El Salvador, where metal mining was banned three years ago to protect their water from Oceana Gold's El Dorado mine. People in El Salvador were actually looking forward to the mine operating. They thought, oh, it'll be jobs, it'll be good for everything. When they started drilling, drilling the exploration holes, wells dried up that had been operating since time immemorial. El Salvador was one of the 
most water-starved countries on Earth. There's only 2% of the water is drinkable now because of previous mining activity there. MUA spokesperson and environmental and anti-corporate solidarity activist Kevin Bracken, speaking on 3CR's Asia-Pacific Currents. It's, it's poisoned a lot of the water supply. They've taken out, I think, 20 tonnes of gold in that area, there wasn't even so much as a bitumen road left. All that was left for the people there was a poison water supply system. So people started campaigning and opposition grew and um, environmental groups you know, sprung up around Cabanas where the uh, mine was supposed to operate and they started opposition, opposing it. And it was picked up by other groups in there. The bishops in El Salvador voted we should be banning mining. So that that's what caused um, Pacific Rim at the time to take the case to an ISDS tribunal. Investor State Dispute Settlement Procedures in Washington. And that case went for seven years. The result was handed down in uh, 2016 that they had to pay $8 million back to El Salvador because they lost the case. One of the reasons they did lose the case is that the, the people who live there are meant to give their free and prior consent to the mine. That means they've got to know fully what's going on, and that never happened. So the ISDS case was lost against them, but it generated so much opposition in El Salvador that later on in March of 2017, the government passed unanimously legislation banning all metalliferous mining in the country. And that was largely due to the actions of, of um, OCR and Gold. So I thought it was extremely um, bad that an Australian-based company based in Collins Street it was pretty well off. It's still one of the poorest countries on earth. The mining permit that the uh, Mosiana Golds got is one of the first issued under the new mining act of the Philippines. And every 25 years, the, the uh, lease comes up for renewal. Well, the renewal date was the 20th of June. And the governor of the Bay of Escaya wanted the mine shut. He could see no benefit for it, for the local people there, and it was poisoned the water supply. Also, what had happened, I think 168 people's homes had been uh, destroyed. A person had been shot, had been trying to stop the um, demolition of a neighbour's house. When the governor, government in El Salvador banned metalliferous mining, the governor of the Bay of Vizcaya was over there for in, the, in the El Salvador parliament at the time. That spurred him on to come back and do his best to have the mine shut down. So on the 20th of June, people in the local community put a barricade on there Oceana Gold tried to put the injunction against the barricade and they were unsuccessful. The magistrate ruled, the local magistrate ruled, said no, the mining permits expired. The um, governor's ordered you to close down, so he didn't, he didn't grant the injunction. And that barricade still holds out now in support of the people of Nevada Vizcaya. And it's a campaign to save Nevada Vizcaya. All mining projects in the Philippines contribute about six point. Six seven percent to the Philippines GDP. Just the um, agricultural produce in the valley south of, the, of where the mine is produces about one point six seven percent of the Philippines GDP. So it's going to do more harm than good, and it's by popular support there that the, the people in that area want the mine shut. The person who was doing their publicity said, "I'd like to have a meeting with you." So said, "Yeah, no worries." So, you now we started talking about the people who have been five or six people being murdered who were campaigning for the closure of the mine, environmental activists. And we said to them, what about this? And they said, this has got nothing to do with us. This is all gang-related. So I said, well, how about page 35 of this document, which had been produced by the um, International Policy Studies, the IPS, 
in the USA. And page 35 said that um, the vice president of um, Pacific Rim, which is a company that Oceana Gold bought out, was caught dismembering a local municipal employee. They couldn't charge him with murder, but they charged him with um, cutting up a body and putting him in two suitcases. He was in charge of the operations in El Salvador at that time. And there was five people missed. The first one um, who were died, first one was Marcelo Rivera. He was a school teacher. He went missing. They found him two weeks later. Down the bottom, of, his body was down the bottom of a mine, with torture signs. You know, compatible with what they used to do in the with the death squads in El Salvador. Um, there was um, I can't remember all their names, and I apologise because every time we do say it, we we venture their names out the front because it's important. They're not statistics, they're people. He was shot four, uh, eight times in the back. They put a police guard on him. Later on. He was shot, and the woman who was hitchhiking in the truck next to him was killed too. When four people had up with M16s. Um, um, daughter Soto, a mother of six, was um, shot. She was eight months pregnant at the time. But also, um, the bullet went through her two-year-old son. She was nursing. And another student was killed in 2011. He went missing, and they found his body in a mass grave in the Philippines now. One of the largest problems is for um, human rights in the Philippines, the um, in Mindanao. Mindanao's been under martial law for two years. Um, while we were over there, the Sultan of Malawi, Malawi was there. Mate, people have been thrown out. It's under martial law, and the native people have been seeking refuge. A lot of them have gone to Manila, and Calica Sands been um, protecting them. They're being harassed now by the police. They've been red baited. So if anyone can go on the Calica Sand website and give them support, that'd be great. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. We heard from Japarong and Gunai sovereign woman Lydia Thorpe with an update on the Japarung Protection Embassy blockade. Protectors there have put the message out this week that support is needed on the ground more than ever. To find out more information, check out Japarung Heritage Protection Embassy on your socials. We also heard from protesters at the Extinction Rebellion Spring actions over the last two weeks, including Kevin Bracken on the grassroots campaign by the people of Nevea Vizcaya, who have barricaded Australian mining company Oceana Gold in protest against the violent and destructive impacts of their mining agenda. The IMARC blockade will take place against the International Mining and Resources Conference happening in Melbourne next week from Monday the 28th of October to Thursday the 31st of October daily from 6am. For more information, go to blockadeimark.com. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Radio Network for all their hard work in bringing you this program today and the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their generous support. Earth Matters is produced at 3CR Community Radio in Fitzroy, Melbourne and we can be contacted at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com. That's all for now, but tune in next week for more environmental and social justice stories.
genocide here is a lot more sneaky than it is in Rwanda or other places around the world. It's one thing whitefellas learnt in the last 200 years to be very sneaky about their genocide. You look at the 38 nations that were here before white settlement and then you count up the numbers that are still surviving, still out there doing their business on their country. Well, there's only 25 left, so what happened to the other 13? Let's talk about the Black GST. Genocide to be stopped, sovereignty acknowledged and treaties made. Tune in to Fire First every Wednesday from 11am till 12 midday on 3CR with Robbie Thorpe. Those people who have no land rights haven't got justice, but neither do those people who have land rights have justice. You're listening to Community Radio Network around Australia, brought to you by 3CR Community Radio. So stay tuned as we bring you news, live updates, music and interviews with Aboriginal people from around the country. The only free body we have is the Aboriginal government on the grassroots and the Aboriginal embassy on the lawns outside the old parliament house. We will not go away. And as that stone rests in that mountain, and as our spirit rests in this country and over this country, we will not go away. Neither shall our power pass. And that's here forever, until justice comes. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.